anecdotally, it is something that I, I hear other providers see or keep telling me. So I'm not, I'm not really too sure what to say with that. Well, that's the beauty of uh, double-blind randomization, isn't it? It's not, an, it's not an anecdote. And the data are very clear with respect to UTIs. I think that risk is really overstated. To Freely Filter, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is a Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice from some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications, or in this case, off-label, but approved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hinemat. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at hswapnil. I am a flozinator, otherwise I don't have any other conflicts. Priya? Hi, everyone. My name is Priya Yenaberry. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Indiana University. I have no disclosures, except I am also a flozinator. And your Twitter handle? Uh, at Prerenal, A-K-I. Prerenal, A-K-I. Clever. Sophia. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a nephrologist and clinician educator at the Denver VA University of Colorado. I tweet at Sophia Kidney, and I have been on an advisory board for AstraZeneca, and I am a flozinator, but just overall fan of SGLT2s. Josh. Josh Waitsman, nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Uh, my Twitter handle is jwaits. I have no conflict of interest. I think you're getting the sense that we all like these medicines before this trial, and we really, really like these medicines after this trial. So I am in line with the group here. Yeah, and I also have uh, worked on an advisory committee uh, uh, for AstraZeneca, which does not make empagliflozin, but ma- excuse me, does not make empagliflozin, but makes uh, dipagliflozin, so a competing, a competing medication. And uh, we have special guest, uh, Brendan Noon. Brendan, uh, introduce yourself. Thanks, Joel. My name's Brendan Nguyen. I'm a nephrologist from Sydney, Australia, and a research fellow at the George Institute for Global Health. Um, and I'm the Secretariat of the SGLT2 Meta-Analysis Clinical Trialist Consortium, or SMART-C. Um, and I've consulted for a number of the companies that make SGLT2 inhibitors, including AstraZeneca and Boehringer and Ingelheim. And and you have been with this story from the very beginning. Is that is that true? Yeah, fairly, fairly early on. Um, I... Uh, was first involved in the CANVAS program, the cardiovascular outcome trial of canagliflozin, which was reported back in 2017. Just after EMPA outcome, right? EMPA outcome's uh, the after first EMPA one. After EMPA reg outcome. EMPA reg outcome. Yeah. The second SGLD2 inhibitor cardiovascular outcome trial have been largely involved in the reporting of the renal results of CANVAS and Credence since then. So if I can ask, uh, like you are, you, you are like a fresh nephrologist, right? You just finished nephrology training and, uh, or maybe you yeah, finished. That's right. Yeah. So how, how come you got involved, you know, for all our listeners who are young and keen to get into research, how, how did this happen? How you got papers in Lancet and circulation and so on and so forth. What's the secret? You know, there's a lot of luck in life, Swapnil. You know, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, 
not often that opportunities like this come along, but I remember I was finishing my uh, internal medicine training and I was kind of sick of doing clinical work and wanted a break. And I'd been in touch with Vlado Perkovic at the George who was running, the George Institute, who was running Credence. And we'd kept in touch ever since I first did DM'd him on Twitter about five years earlier. And I said to him, have you got anything going on at the moment that I can help with. And he said, and this was in July 2017, just as Canvas was published, but the renal outcomes hadn't been published yet. And he said, yeah, I need your help, but I need you to hit it hard now. And that uh, really became the kind of sole focus of my life for the next five or seven years. That's amazing. That was out of internal medicine residency? Yeah, that's right. Are, are you a nephrologist? Yeah, just newly minted, just qualified. Yeah, just got my letters. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> congratulations, number one. But number Thanks. two, did you put the medicine training on hold then while you dug deep into the stats here and doing all the data analysis and writing? Yeah, I spent two, three years away from clinical medicine t- between 2017 and 2020. And, um, and that time I spent um, both in Sydney and over at Oxford doing clinical trials with my supervisor at the time, who you will know is Will Harrington. And Will was just setting up Empikidney at the time as well. So that was really fortuitous. So you can see there's a lot of luck involved, but I had a great time working with Will, have uh, still love working with Flato. And it's just, I have to pinch myself every day that I get to do such fun stuff. But I think the most important thing here that you brought up is that you reached out and, Mm -hmm. you know, I would have never thought of doing that in internal medicine. I would have never thought that that is something anybody would have responded to me for just sort of DM. Number one, I wasn't on Twitter then, but number two, that's just not where I was. And so this story is really great for a whole bunch of people who are wanting to make a difference in this world and say, hey, you're not going to know unless you try. Totally. And, um, you know, Joel and Swap, you were around, you know, on Twitter back in 2012, 2013. And that was when I, that was when I uh, tweeted Vlado when uh, I was, I said, I wanted to do a PhD at the George and he, he messaged me and said, we should catch up. And that was the start of what is a great collaborative relationship. So again, the power of Twitter, even though it looks like a bit of a disaster zone at the moment. So, uh, we tonight are talking about EMPA kidney and at broad strokes, yet another smashing success of an SGLT2 inhibitor trial. And I'm super excited to go deep into this and we are going to go deep into it. But what we're looking at is that the body of evidence that we have for SGLT2 inhibitors is greater and stronger than we have for any drug that we've ever had in nephrology. It really is amazing. And you know, and, and I think after going through uh, Credence and DAPA CKD, and so Credence was our first uh, trial that showed that had patients at high risk for kidney outcomes showing a significant improvement in preventing dialysis. And then DAPA CKD was the first trial without diabetic patients, uh, you know, t- taking this diabetic drug and saying, hey, it actually works for all patients, very significant. And EMPA kidney is kind of in the same vein as we've had for DAP CKD, right? Again, it's, but more so, right? We have more patients that are not diabetics in the study. We go to a lower GFR. We go down to uh, 20 rather than 25. Is that, do I have that right there? Yeah, and, and proteinuria. And it's, that's right. So the, in all the previous trials, uh, they required at least 200 milligrams per gram creatinine in, uh, that was in DAPA CKD and 300 milligrams per gram creatinine in Credence, if I've got that right. And so we're, and here in patients with low GFRs, at least they could go, they needed, there was no albuminuria requirement. 
Exactly. So again, we're expanding what these drugs can do and where these have been shown to be effective. But the broad strokes are the kind of the same as we've seen before. These just these drugs just work. We're just kind of pushing out the boundaries of where we show that they work. And this is something that we just we don't have this kind of high quality data, for example, with ARBs or ACE inhibitors, where we have some blockbuster trials in diabetes, and then we've got some data not nearly as uh, uh, thorough or compelling in kind of the non-diabetic uh, proteinuric diseases and really no compelling data uh, for ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers in patients without proteinuria. Just no dedicated study like this where they kind of enrolled those patients purposely to see if those drugs work in that situation. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I think the meta-analysis suggests that they're really not more effective than other antihypertensives. But it's disappointing that we can't point to a trial to, that actually examine that as a primary hypothesis, while with the SGLT2 inhibitors, they're just kind of knocking off one after another. And there are there are still questions in SGLT2 inhibitors, even after epikidney, where I'm excited to see those, like with things that we have not been answered. Uh, transplant patients, a lot of retrospective and observational data. We don't have prospective trials, and that's coming. GFR is less than 20. Mm-hmm. Dialysis patients. PKD. Polycystic kidney disease, another great one. Exactly. So there's definitely other areas that need to be plumbed. And I'm sure we're going to also get additional publications coming out of epikidney because there's some interesting subpopulations here. But I just think it's it's just amazing the quality of the data that is being generated for this uh, for this this class of medications. Absolutely. You nailed it there. I, I think the the only thing I would caution about before we give SGLT2s to everyone independent of ACE and ARBs is that ACE and ARB medicines are really the foundation in all of these trials. Every patient's got to be on one or almost all are on one to get into the trial. And so we're in a place as a field kind of where I think the heart failure field is in some ways, where everyone's got to be on their baseline therapy of beta blocker, and everyone's got to be on their baseline therapy of ACE inhibitor, before you get to add a new medicine on top of it. I think it makes it hard to say which medicine is is better. I'm not going to say one's better. I agree that the evidence here is overwhelming with the tens of thousands of patients who've been in trials of SGLT2 inhibitors on top of ACEs and ARBs showing a benefit. But I, I just don't want folks to throw out medicines that we do know are helpful, even though we don't have the same sheer number of patients enrolled in trials who, who've shown that benefit. Yeah, so the only the only way I would push back is that in the diabetes trials, and Brendan can chip in because he's done some of the work, in the diabetes cardiovascular trials, Empire Egg, Canvas, uh, which were not the CKD trials, the RAS inhibition was not mandatory. A bunch of them were on RAS inhibitors, but it wasn't required. So I don't, I don't know, maybe 20, 30% of patients were not on RAS inhibitors. And Brendan has done a meta-analysis showing that the effect sizes are very similar. Am I right? Yeah, that's right, Swap. So the in the diabetes cardiovascular outcome trials, the effects of SGLT2 inhibition on kidney disease progression are similar with and without baseline RAS blockade. And actually, although it's not published in Empa kidney yet, that you get the exact same result in Empa kidney as well. The effect of empagliflozin was consistent regardless of RAS blockade. So I suspect once you all put it together, that it's going to be, you're going to get a similar result there. And I think that's important for people who, you know, can't tolerate RAS for one reason or another, hyperkalemia or something else that's kind of reassuring. Can I just, I just want to make sure people understand exactly what that analysis is. And that analysis is patients not on ACE inhibitors, placebo versus uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. It's, uh, Brennan's not saying that these drugs have the same effect, whether you're on an ACE inhibitor plus an SGLT2 inhibitor versus just an SGLT2 inhibitor. He's comparing people that both, both groups do not have an ACE inhibitor, placebo versus SGLT2 inhibitors. Is that right, Brendan? That's correct. Yep. And we believe that there's additive protection. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that that analysis supports the idea that Josh is saying, you know, this is added. Everything is additive. You've got benefits from RAS inhibition, then you get additive benefits on SGLT with SGLT2 and then additive benefits with the next agent. That's that's the that's where I think we're headed with combination therapy. And clinically, I'm not going to wait to get somebody on a RAS inhibitor before I start them on an SGLT2, especially if they're on the higher end of a, you know, serum potassium. I'm going to start them both. And, you know, you only, it's like one and done. You get them on their, we do 12 and a half, just a half tablet at, at the VA. And we use Impagliflozin because that's, we contract with them. But we get them on that. And then I'll up titrate my RAS inhibitor. And the data based on hyperkalemia is also worthwhile that really there's no reason to not start them on the SGLT2 inhibitor. I mean, you get them on both, just like what cardiologists do, right? They start all of the, the goal-directed therapy at once. And why would we wait? Okay, we're gonna, we're ready to get into this. Swapnil, you're going to be giving us some methods. Yeah, I'll try to be brief. Uh, this is a multi-center. Thank God. <laughs> I know you have downloaded the supplement. So, you know, you can... Oh, now you're embarrassing me. <laughs> Swap, I'll tell you I looked at the supplement with you in mind. <laughs> I, I, Swap, I downloaded the supplement and now I've got a rash. I think it's related. <laughs> Take a flozen. He just downloaded it. He... He hasn't. He hasn't even looked at it yet, but he downloaded it, so it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, baby steps. If he reads it, he's gonna like lose his eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a randomized multicenter placebo control trial. Uh, it, it's it's as good as can be. Uh, so you know, there's the really nothing much to discuss. But let's go through it. Uh, in terms of uh, the design and funding, it was designed by the uh, Oxford Trials Group led by Will Harrington and Richard Haynes, who were the first and last author and who wrote the paper, who did the analysis. Uh, it was funded by Boringer Ingelheim, the manufacturer of uh, EMPA glyphosin, though didn't have any say in the you know the actual uh, analysis or, or the results. Uh, as eligibility, uh, patients had to have a GFR between 20 and 45 with no restriction on proteinuria, or they had to have a GFR of 45 to 90 with at least an albumin to creatinine ratio of 200. The third part is they could have diabetes, they could not have diabetes. So these are the three main groups. Uh, So GFR 45 to 90 with albuminuria, GFR 20 to 45 with or without albuminuria, and diabetes or no diabetes. And they needed a third, roughly a third in each group. Uh, because they needed in- adequate sample sizes for the uh, subgroup analysis. Swap, can I just add one other thing that I thought was interesting? And I read this in the supplement, that they the number of EGFR greater than 45 uh, was also limited to a third of the population. So they actually limited that as well. Exactly right. So they, they, uh, uh, they wanted, and I think that was one of the version two or version three, because when this was designed, Credence and DAPA CKD results weren't out. So as soon as these came out, it was like, hey, you know, the results are going to be less relevant. So let's try to focus on getting the people in the low GFR, you know, 20 to 45 non-albuminuria, which was, you know, a smart decision on their part, uh, as we shall see. Uh, they did have type 1 diabetes initially, uh, but the first version took that out, probably because of the uh, euglycemic DKA data that was, you know, uh, becoming very, very uh, apparent by that time. But there still is a population that had type 1 diabetes in the study. Right. So until the version 2 came out, you know, for the first few months of recruitment, they had a few type 1 uh, diabetes. The RAS inhibition, they were supposed to be on a RAS inhibition, but it was allowed that if, the, if it was not indicated 
or it would not be tolerated they need not be on the ras inhibition and that goes back to joel's point right like look let's look at a patient who does not have diabetes who does not have albuminuria with a gfr of 25 i may or may not put them on an ace inhibitor uh, or a angiotensin receptor blocker so they would not need to be on it just to be in this trial so i think that was a smart uh, decision uh, in this case they did it require justification of course in terms of patients who were not eligible uh, sophia already alluded to polycystic kidney disease uh, there is some animal data saying that you know cysts may grow with flozin so all the trials in kidney disease have excluded patients with polycystic kidney disease patients who had received a kidney transplant were also excluded uh, in addition to that they had a few other interesting uh, there is a long list of exclusion in the uh, in the baseline uh, data paper in ndt as well as their protocol if you download the protocol joel uh but um, uh, people on dual ras blockade were excluded um those who had ketoacidosis in the past 5 years were excluded and uh, uh, as far as immunosuppression is concerned because they they could have ckd with some non diabetic glomerular disease for example right uh, so they should not be on any iv immunosuppression for at least 3 months uh, so oral immunosuppression is okay i guess and if they were on prednisone the dose had to be less than 45 mg so if they were on 45 mg uh, more than 45 mg they would be excluded so no iv immunosuppression and if they're on steroids it has to be less than 45 mg a day 45 mg a day exactly so if someone had was on 35 mg a day and oral cyclophosphamide they would be in i guess uh, though i suspect there were not many patients uh, like that in this uh, in this trial that seems looser than what we had for dapa ckd is that right is that right brennan Yeah that's right. If you look at the initial empa kidney protocol they excluded people with prednisolone dose greater than 10 mg and then in version 2 of the protocol they upped that to 45 and dapa ckd if i remember correctly didn't include anyone on immunosuppression. That was my that so, was my impression yeah. yeah. That is going to be interesting um it's going to I mean presumably we'll we'll eventually get a publication that's going to look into these patients with other uh non-diabetic proteinuric diseases and we'll see what that population ended up looking exactly. like. Exactly. So I mean, you know, uh this this was the biggest IGA trial bigger than testing uh, uh as as we can uh, see later. Uh so everyone got uh, as far as the trial procedures are concerned uh, empagliflozin versus placebo if they were eligible they entered a run in phase and in this case the run in phase was pretty long it was a placebo of course that they got for 15 weeks so about you know just under 4 months uh pretty long and and this is when you know the eligibility was confirmed uh, about 6 weeks into the at least 6 weeks into the running phase that's when they had the you know uh, the ras inhibition uh was justification was done and they had the baseline they had the screening for test to make sure the gfr is okay uh, and the proteinuria level is okay to be um, uh, enrolled in this trial uh the randomization did they do a run in phase hey swap or brandon did they do a run in phase in dapa ckd or credence or any of those other trials yeah credence was a placebo run in phase I think about 2 weeks or so and uh i can't remember dapa ckd sp- specifically do you remember swap No but I am I'm I have a vague recollection that they had a placebo run in phase but I'm not sure how long and again this is fine it's just that I was surprised it was so long but I guess this is sort of you know trying to get all their ducks in order uh before they get randomized yeah and that's important swap because you the trialists will want to make sure that people who are not adherent to study medication are all filtered out before randomization so that's part of the rationale for a slightly longer placebo run in phase phase just make sure everyone will be able to take or comply with the study procedures 
And Brendan, with in terms of it, ensuring the adherence of patients to the placebo medicine in this phase, are you assessing by pill counts? Are you assessing by something else to figure out if people are actually taking this? Yeah, that's right. That's usually the tip, the typical way it's done. So then, in terms of uh, they had follow up visits uh, where you know their after randomization they had these follow up visits where you know their labs would be checked and uh, any clinical events that were done were checked and you know safety and so on and so forth. And I think Brendan mentioned something about how often the creatinine was checked after the empagliflozin was started, right? I, I'm going to start reading the supplements. I'm looking through the supplement. I found my name in there. On page five, <laughs> this is awesome. I had no idea. I'm gonna, I gotta add that to the New England Journal. Of my, I put the NEJM supplement onto my. Uh, oh, you had a CV. This you had a site investigator for Empaki. Yeah, we were. Oh, I was not the PI, but our whole group, uh, literally the entire research department is is named. I was kind of, I'm kind of surprised. That's why I was, I wasn't expecting to see my name there. But you give credit where credits due. I did not deserve any credit. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, I think you guys are right. This, this supplement, there's something to it. Are your eyes burning right now, Joel? Well, I, I, so far, it's working. Well, anytime I see my name, I'm just a... <laughs> you start <eyes>. watering. <laughs> I got stars in my eyes now. I'm a star. Yeah, but, but I was asking uh, uh, Brendan about the um, creatinine measurements. Yeah, so Swapnil, one distinction between Credence and Dapa CKD was, is that first EGFR measurement. In Credence and DAPA CKD, the first GFR measurement or first study visit was quite early, um, two weeks in DAPA CKD, three weeks in Credence, anticipating that acute dip in GFR. But here in Empikidney, it's not until two months. And I think they've demonstrated clearly the trial that it's a safe medication and probably you don't need to necessarily check GFR early in most circumstances because there's no increased risk of hyperkalemia, no increased risk of acute kidney injury. And that certainly helps, I think, from an implementation perspective. You can take your next GFR measurement at the next scheduled follow-up clinic. And this trial certainly gives us some evidence to do that, um, pretty strong evidence, I would say. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned was that they had this long run-in period to assure compliance. But I'm looking at that, you know, they ended up excluding 1,500 people during that run-in. Is that results? Should I, should I hold that? I'm going to hold my, I'm going to hold that until we get to results. Sorry about that. I actually pulled this up to look at the consort diagram. I really just, that's what I really want to do. Okay, sorry about that. Go on. Yeah, so in terms of outcomes then, the primary outcome was the occurrence of, is a, is a composite of the occurrence of progression of kidney disease and cardiovascular death. So let's look at how progression of kidney disease was defined. And this is sort of important because you're looking at people at the low end of GFR, whose GFR is down to 20 right? So you have to be careful about the 30%, 40% drop in GFR. So in this case, the progression of kidney disease was de defined as either end-stage kidney disease, which is someone started dialysis or got a kidney transplant, or their decrease in GFR was less than 10. So they went from, you know, wherever they were to less than 10 in, in case they did not start dialysis, or a, a sustained decrease from baseline of at least 40% or renal death. So the, the 10 ml per minute is slightly different than what we usually see. We often see 40% and, uh, you know, dialysis and transplant. But in addition, in this case, it is a GFR of less than 10. The, for the assessment of that sustained decrease, they used uh, values that were measured at at least two consecutive scheduled follow-up 30 days apart. Uh, the GFR was all CKD-AP, uh, you know, the older CKD-AP uh, with the race uh, uh, included, of course. And then they had a bunch of pre-specified secondary outcomes. The key uh, pre-specified secondary outcomes 
where a composite of hospitalization for heart failure and cardiovascular death, hospitalization for any cause and death from any cause. And they had a bunch of other secondary outcomes, not key, uh, like, you know, progression of kidney disease alone, death from cardiovascular disease alone, and a composite of ESKD and cardiovascular death. Uh, and they had a bunch of tertiary safety, you know, ketoacidosis, UTI, all those uh, outcomes that we'll talk in the results. Uh, the- this all feels very familiar. Are there any important differences from our previous um, DAPA CKD or Credence that I should be thinking of? I think it's important, Joel, to look at the definition of a sustained decline in GFR in Kidney compared to the other trials, because they all use slightly different definitions, right? So Kidney uses 40% decline in GFR, DAPA-CKD used 50%, Credence used doubling of serum creatinine, which is 57%. Now, look, it doesn't, the overall message doesn't change, but when you look at the magnitude of the treatment effect in Kidney, because of that acute dip in GFR, and the slower rate of GFR decline in the overall population, it looks like that uh, the treatment effect is slightly less impressive in kidney than compared to Credence and DAPA-CKD. But when you use a larger decline in GFR, you get almost the same treatment effect in, as in Credence and DAPA-CKD. And so what we're learning about these GFR thresholds is it depends on the drug, it depends on the background rate of GFR decline, and depends on the magnitude of the acute effect. So those are important things to consider when people are designing trials. And, um, and here, you know, they used 40%. But if you use 50% in, in 50% decline in GFR, if you look at the Smart C Lancet paper, you see the kidney results by 50% decline. And it's almost exactly the same as Credence and DAPA CKD. Very cool. And, 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 you know, they could not use 40% at that time because the 40% decline in GFR came out in about 2019 when kidney was starting, right? So the, there was an FDA... National Kidney Foundation workshop and they put out, you know, like 40% is acceptable. Until then, it was doubling of creatinine, which is 57%. So, uh, you know, the, the other previous trials could obviously not have used 40%. So, Empa Kidney was timed perfectly to use that new definition. So, I think going forward in when we're pooling all of the SGLT2 results, we're going to use 50% decline in GFR because it probably strikes the best balance between increasing the number of events that you get with 40% with getting with uh, kind of not diluting the uh, effect from the acute dip that can kind of muddy the picture a little bit. So I know that, I mean, very clearly SGLT2s, it's a class effect. Do you think that there are true differences between each drug beyond like the definitions that are utilized and, and what we're utilizing to make primary and you know define the kidney outcomes? I think, Sophie, if you look across all of the both renal and cardiovascular and heart failure trials, it's very pretty clear that it's a class effect that's consistent across the agents. I haven't seen anything that suggests otherwise. And I think that would be the view of most of the people involved in these trials and clinicians more generally. Because I feel like sometimes the pharmaceutical companies want to, you know, tout their own and they say this one's great and this one's not. And it's all based on the definitions that they use for their renal outcomes. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the performance of the drug. Yeah, I'd agree with that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we can go into that in more detail at the, at the results, um, after the results, perhaps. So the, the last part, you know, so that I finish this before Joel gets even more angry at me, is the analysis and the sample size. So this was an event-driven trial. So they were looking for 1,070 patients who would have 
uh, one of the primary outcomes uh, that would give them 90% power and they were you know looking for an 18% relative risk reduction that was how the trial was designed 18% you know so a relative risk of 0.82 they were they did plan a single interim analysis and the interim analysis was supposed to be done when 150 patients had end stage kidney disease so not 150 patients having the primary outcome but having the end stage kidney disease at which point you know many more would have had progression of ckd from other outcomes and cardiovascular death um, and we shall see what happened there but for this then the stopping was slightly more rigorous so instead of 18% they needed like roughly 22% uh, effect size to stop uh, with a stopping rule saying the hazard ratio had to be less than 0.778 and the p-value had to be, you know, less than uh, 0.0017 for the primary outcome and less than 0.05 for the secondary outcome of ESKD and cardiovascular death. So again, this was a, uh, they put in additional, you know, barriers to make it hard to stop the trial unless there was a huge uh, out of proportion uh, signal in the one interim analysis they were doing. Uh, the rest of it is, you know, uh, it was all intention to treat. Uh, they were looking at subgroups and they were looking at many other secondary outcomes. For the secondary outcomes, they had, uh, you know, multiple, they adjusted for multiple testing. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Everything was very clean. I those, stopping, those stopping rules typically don't get put into the uh, into the methods of a, of a publication. I guess only if it is stopped early do they then say, hey, these are the, this is the guidelines we used. Is that... Yeah, they are always pre. They have to be pre-specified. Uh, so they are they are pre-specified unless, of course, some a study stopped for safety. Uh, so they are pre-specified. Uh, and uh, uh, and you're right. I, if it wasn't stopped, it, it's not exciting enough to be mentioned specifically. Yeah, and you know it's pretty amazing that all three renal outcome trials now of SGLT two inhibitors have been stopped based on pre-specified efficacy criteria. Just astounding, really, I think. And also from an interpretation perspective, one one thing is that it does reduce the power to detect, uh, you know, treatment effects in particular subgroups. And I'm sure we're going to talk about the normal albuminuric participants, but it's one, just one thing to remember, yeah. Swap, are, we, are, are you done? I am done. It's only uh, 45 minutes since we started. You know, one more thing that's interesting is uh, this was all done during COVID right? All of the recruitment was done during COVID. And if you look in, I think the baseline paper, you can see recruitment just drop off a cliff in the start of 2020 and then come back up again. And this was only done in about eight or nine countries. So this, these were highly recruit, these all centers recruited really well. It was a streamlined design. And I think a lot of that credit has to go to Will and Richard and the Oxford team who, who've designed a trial that was easy for people to get patients into and was done under such challenging circumstances. Really kudos to the team. Uh, Brennan, can I ask another question here? I feel like when we start focusing on these medicines, some people counsel patients on sick day rules. If you're feeling crummy, you shouldn't take this medicine. Uh, number one, do you know if there was any counseling built into the methods here on that? And number two, with COVID emerging, did everyone have to make some kind of adaptation around that? Um, so the sick day rules... As far as I'm aware, Josh, none, none specifically. And that was the same as Credence and DAPA CKD, no specific guidance about sick day rules. Um, and then about COVID, I'm, I'm not sure what the investigators did in, in that particular situation. I am very skeptical about these sick day rules. This is one of these things, it's like this common sense thing that we should do. Like, show me the data that this has ever avoided one, one patient going on dialysis, one episode of hyperkalemia, or some significant uh, uh, negative outcome. And I, and, and I really worry, and I really worry about 
teaching your patients how dangerous your medicines are, right? <laughs> These medications literally keep you off dialysis, prevent you from dying and keeping you out of the hospital, not necessarily in that order. And the last thing I want to do is get people nervous about taking these medications. And unless you can show me, show me a prospective study where you randomize patients to sick day rules or not, and it made a difference. Joel, I'm going to push back on that just a little bit, only because of the actual SGLT2 inhibitors and what they can do from sort of the fasting state and the euglycemic ketoacidosis. So from my perspective and patients who are sick enough to not be eating, I think the use of SGLT2 inhibitors could potentially be held for a couple of days. Whether or not that this is like a true signal, I don't know. Um, and I am very much aware that it's our you know, insulin dependent patients that have a greater risk of developing the the euglycemic uh, ketoacidosis. But I do think SGLT2s themselves do place our bodies into a fasting state. I think there's something to be said about that. And I think some caution should be taken until we know more information. And if I could have the last word on that is that uh, maybe not the last word. Uh, but I, I am with Joel. Uh, I agree with Sophia, but I am with Joel also because uh, there is a study in CJs and we'll, we'll put in the show notes showing that when you tell people, hey, stop this pill and don't stop this pill, what actually happens is who knows what? Because instead of stopping their metformin, they will stop their nifedipine and, uh, or their antibiotic. Uh, so, so that is one, is that these, these things are not usable. Uh, and the second thing is when it comes to flozins, they actually reduce AKI. Uh, but there are a couple of trials in COVID, in hospitalized COVID, uh, you know, there was there. Uh, and again, though, it wasn't significantly positive. All the all the effect sizes, all the point estimates were uh, on the favorable side. And the same group, Oxford, is is part of the recovery trial, which is doing empagliflozin in, in COVID, in hospitalized COVID, which is still enrolling and which hasn't finished and it hasn't stopped for a safety signal. So uh, I think, yes, uh, if they are fasting, I completely agree. You should You should hold it. Uh, and um, I think in, in Canvas, they had to put an amendment, right? Because of the, if they have, anyone has an open ulcer on the leg or something like that. I don't know if that is still part of the protocol for other trials, but I think that is something to think about as well. And one of the things about the, the, if you read a number of these case reports for the euglycemic DKA is the duration of time that you need to be off the drug to prevent this. So there's a lot of case reports where people had stopped the drug for 48 hours and 72 hours before surgery and still developed with eugly- and still developed the euglycemic DKA because at least in some patients, the drug seems to hang around for a lot longer than it's supposed to by kind of average um, pharmacokinetics. And, and if that's, and, and, you know, that's the case, now you're going to have to tell, to really protect people against this euglycemic DKA, you need to say, well, you need to stop the drugs three or four days before you fast so that you're covering your fast. Like who the hell, who the hell knows? It's just, I just, I worry that you're, you're spending a lot of time and energy and creating a lot of fear about an incredibly rare side effect. I think they had, there was just a, a handful of cases yeah. uh, in this study. And in most of the RCTs, it wasn't even reported. There weren't enough cases to even be of significance there. And Joel, if you look at the non-diabetic population across all of the trials, there is only one single case of ketoacidosis in the non-diabetic population, and that was in ember kidney. And it was in it was a case where someone was hospitalised for weeks on end, and they had multi-organ problems, and so and they were weren't fed, and so you know exactly. So I think it's an I think it's an evolving. You know, I think the recommendations are going to evolve in this area as people become more comfortable using using these agents. Okay. 
Priya, hit us with some results. All right. This is the moment we've all been waiting for because we have quite a few things that we'd probably want to talk about. So so the study was conducted during uh, 2019 to 2021. That's when about uh, 8,544 participants were screened. Um, and after that, um, there was 81, or excuse me, 8,184 patients that started in the run-in phase. And um, Joel, you did uh, question uh, all of the patients that eventually got excluded in the run-in phase. Seems that according to the supplemental, a lot of those were excluded for whatever reason, but a lot of them were excluded for blood results. So essentially, I assume that some of their laboratory results during this several-week run-in phase uh, excluded them from the criteria that SWAP was saying. So after that run-in phase, Hey, help me out. Would you know what adverse, what do they mean by an adverse event during this placebo phase? Like this was like a, a hospitalization or yeah, reaction um, to the wood or the sawdust or the placebo? <laughs> like what the hell is going on there? I'm not entirely sure. I, I bet you that it is somewhere in uh, the supplement, uh, the very, very well done supplement, by the way, um, probably in the first part of it. So I'd have to kind of go back and look, but I don't think I, I, I know off the top of my head what specific adverse events they were. To exclude but Priya, them. you said blood results? Yeah, yeah, blood results for 612 people. So I, I, I question whether or not, say, someone had a Sophia, GFR. Sophia, it's, it's, it's figure S1. It's on page 30, 36 of the supplement. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> My eyeballs are starting to burn up. Hey, right Sophia, now. I've told you once, I've told you a million times, you got to read the supplement. What are you even doing coming here if you're not reading the supplement? So, you know, it's just oh, it's a basic stuff. So I question if what they mean by that is, say, someone had an estimated GFR of, say, 25 at the beginning of the run-in period. And then in that placebo run-in period, uh, their GFR, however, changed. And now they are below that original 25 cutoff that we had, excuse me, 20 cutoff that we had. So they would be excluded. Brendan, is, is that correct? Is that essentially how I'm supposed to be thinking of that? the reason why a lot of people had to leave? People might have been excluded uh, at that point because there was a discrepancy between the local lab and the central lab, for example. But if people had a GFR above 20 um, and at the time of randomization fell to 15, they were still randomized. Yeah, there's a line at seven weeks. It's seven weeks into the run and they do those, they said in the methods, they said they did the, the labs to determine eligibility of leave. And one of the coolest things about the chat was actually Will chimed in and showed unpublished data about this subgroup of people with the GFR of 15 to 20. And they also have the same benefit that everyone else in the subgroup does. And so I feel like the secret headline of this trial is not that the cutoff should be 20, but the cutoff can keep moving lower at least to 15 or even lower than that. That makes a lot more sense because when I was looking through the rest of the subgroups, I'm like, where did this small subgroup less than... Uh, the original exclusion criteria come from, so that so that does make a lot of sense. And that and that and that same pattern was seen in Credence and also seen in DAPA CKD, and they ended up publishing those those data on those low GFR patients, and they had very similar results where it was indistinguishable the benefit that those patients got. So this is very consistent with previous data. So then, at the time of randomization, we had six thousand six hundred and nine patients. Three thousand three hundred and four were in the Flozen group. And then 3,305 were in the placebo group. Um, moving on to table one, the baseline characteristics between the two groups. Uh, the mean age was 64 years old. About 33% of each group were women. About 46% of each group had diabetes. 
Oh, 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 wait, only a third women. What? What's going on there? Is that typical of these trials? What? What? What was? Was that also in DAPA CKD or in Credence? Yeah, it's actually. It is very similar to the other renal outcome trials and other cardiovascular outcome trials in general. I think it highlights a problem that we have in clinical trials of not of not recruiting uh, diverse enough populations. And this is not just women, but you know p- people from minorities. And it's something that regulators are looking at now, and quite rightly that we need to, if we're going to be treating diverse patients, we need to recruit diverse patients to trials. So it's certainly people have identified it as a problem. And I don't know what the exact reason is, but um, it's it's been seen across the other SGLT2 inhibitor outcome trials and other trials more generally. I mean, you can see, right, doing a, doing a, sorry, doing a trial is not easy. You know, you have to make all these visits. Uh, you, have, you have your medical care, but in addition to that, you have to, you know, do go every two months, see your doctor, do these other extra visits. And it's quite possible that women, you know, have other, their busy lives uh, and it may be harder uh, than, uh, yeah, no, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm serious, right? Uh, the responsibilities that a woman has are probably more than men have. Uh, and that may be part of the reason. And the same thing is for minorities. Many of them may be doing jobs that may not allow them the luxury and flexibility to, to do these trials. And, uh, and so this is kind of the best we do. But like Brendan said, the pushback is that we should be making trials easier and, and trying to make an effort to make sure we you know make it easy for these people who are otherwise finding it hard to enroll in trials to enroll in trials. Right. And just to highlight, four, just under 4% were Black. Um, I mean, it was mainly white and Asians. That's really underrepresentation for quite a few of the you know, other populations. So if you, when you look at uh, from the United States, though, I think that the, black, the proportion of Black patients was much more representative of the United States population. It's partly due to where these uh, which countries participants were recruited from that the overall proportion is low. But yeah, if you look at the U.S., it's reasonably representative of the U.S. population. So moving on through our table, we saw that uh, 73% of the uh, groups did not have any type of cardiovascular disease. So I thought that was pretty interesting um, as it is one of the uh, primary outcomes. Mean GFR was 37, with about 35% of each of the group having an estimated GFR of less than 30. 48% of the patients had a UACR of less than 300. And 85% of each of the groups were on an ACE inhibitor, which was one of the medications that we discussed earlier. Or RAS inhibition, right? Uh, excuse me, I apologize. Ras inhibition, not just. And that number sounds almost exactly like the other big um, uh, flows and trials that I could. That it's usually in that eighty to ninety percent range. If I'm just thinking back, and that's ras inhibition with a single ace. That's ace or arb. That doesn't include spironolactone. That is correct. Um, And then uh, finally, they looked at cause of kidney disease itself, and thirty-one percent of the patients had diabetic kidney disease. Other uh, diseases included hypertension, glomerular diseases, and, and a whole other uh, miscellaneous category as well. But 12 to 13% had glomerular disease. I mean, that's a pretty good representation. Wait, 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 it's 25%. 25% with glomerular disease. It's 12% with, with other. With other, yeah. Who knows what that is? So essentially, it was diabetes, kidney disease, and then hypertension slash Glomerular were about the same, anywhere from 20 to 25 percent 
um, and then either unknown or or other for, for the remainder. So uh, a pretty good breakdown and definitely a lot of glomerular disease that I wouldn't have expected in in this, but I'm glad that they captured it. Yeah, and, and uh, if you look at the uh, baseline paper, they had 817 patients, 817 with IgA nephropathy. Uh, and, and, you know, testing was what, 500? Uh, so, so this is bigger than any other IgA trial. Even FSGS, they had about 200 patients. Membranous was about 100. So, you know, very, very good GN uh, representation. Yes, absolutely. Moving forward through uh, through our paper here, we'll kind of talk about the first formal interim analysis, which is what we kind of discussed earlier. Essentially, the study was stopped early after meeting efficacy outcomes. And at that point in time, the study was stopped. And then follow-up time was about two years for follow-up time for the patients after that. So by the end of the trial, when it comes to a close, 99% of the patients were accounted for in terms of uh, where we started and where we ended up. Um, and the, the few patients that essentially were not counted were either ones that withdrew consent or there was just missing data. So we can go ahead and we can move on to the outcomes. The first thing, of course, will be our primary outcomes. That was progression of CKD or death from a cardiovascular cause. And that's seen in table two. Um, it was observed that 13% of the Flozen group and about 17% of the placebo group had the primary outcome. Um, with a p-value of less than 0.001, which turned out to be about a 28% risk reduction in the flozen arm itself. So continuing on with the primary outcomes, they actually went ahead and looked at each of those primary outcomes separately, the progression of CKD, and then the death from CV uh, causes. And they found that there was a 29% uh, relative risk reduction for the CKD progression in the flozen arm. And um, for the cardiovascular death events, they were low in both arms, but the flozen arm had about 1% of death in the group, and the placebo arm had about 2.1% for deaths. And that was the essentially the breakdown of the primary outcomes. I thought death was 1.8% for the for the uh, impact of flozen, right? Uh, that's what I said. Not 1%. I thought you said, did you say 1%? I said 1.8% and then 2.1%. Yeah, so so this is this is where you know uh, most patients die of my my concept was that CKD patients die of cardiovascular diseases, and the event rates here seem to be a little bit low. The and, and again from your meta-analysis, Brendan, the in non-diabetic populations, the cardiovascular signal was less, if I'm not wrong. Now, is this because of the patients who were included, like like Priya alluded to, that most patients did not have pre-existing cardiovascular disease? Is this sort of when we were doing the CKD trials, we excluded high-risk cardiovascular patients or something? Yeah, I think that was certainly, at least for me, slightly unexpected that the there was no significant reduction in cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure. But as you point out, this is a much lower cardiovascular risk population than the other renal outcome trials, and certainly the CVOTs, the diabetes trials. So I think there's more that needs to be done to unpack that result. But I don't think that it indicates any difference between this and the other agents within the class. I think there's a, these these drugs clearly have cardiovascular benefits, particularly for hospitalization for heart failure. I think this is probably just a low risk population where it's more difficult to demonstrate a clear effect. Wasn't the ex one of the exclusion criteria is having type two diabetes and prior exactly. atherosclerotic disease with an EGFR greater than sixty? So it really is taking a a large swath out of the picture, right? Just right then and there. 
You're right. I did not. I forgot to mention that, Sophia. Good catch. So patients who had prior uh, atherosclerotic disease uh, in in the GFR more than sixty and diabetes were excluded because they've already been studied, right? In the other in the other outcome trials, and there was a clear benefit in those patients. Right. So there's no equipoise in the randomizing these patients. That's a that's a good point. So moving on to our secondary outcomes, um, it was noted that in the Flozen group, they had a lower rate of hospitalizations when compared to the placebo group, with a p-value of 0.003. And there was no significant differences when it came to hospitalizations for heart failure or any other death from any other cause um, that was noted as well. And now uh, when we get to the crux of the supplementals, it's essentially a lot of the subgroup analyses uh, that we have. Um, So looking at figure two, it shows that for the primary outcomes in specific subgroup analyses, including the presence of diabetes or without diabetes, the estimated GFR itself, and then the UACR uh, groups broken down by the degree of albuminuria. Um, It showed that the Flozen arm showed benefit in most of these groups, most notably in the diabetes arm or the diabetes subgroup, excuse me, the UACR group of greater than 300, and then the patients with an EGFR of greater than or equal to 45. Yeah, so so the, the the subgroups are consistent as far as diabetes and uh, GFR is con- concerned. You know, I wouldn't make too much of the point estimates. I think the results yeah. are overall pretty yeah. consistent. But when it comes to the UACR, the the effect size for yeah, I think that that that's worth unpacking. Is so in diabetes presence or absence strong effect on both of those across the GFR range. Strong effect for protection from the impact of flows and but it does appear that there is some difference when it comes to the albuminuria and that uh, essentially the effect size for albuminuria less than 30, it runs right through the line of identity is what it looks like with, with really wide confidence intervals. So yeah, what, what I would say is there's no clear evidence that the benefits of empagliflozin differ by diabetes status or, and then, or baseline kidney function, but there was some evidence that the magnitude of benefit appeared greater in people with macroalbuminuria. But part of the problem is that if you look at the normal albuminuric subgroup, there are only 80 events. So it's very difficult to show a treatment effect when the rate of GFR decline in the normal albuminuric subgroup is so low. The chronic slope is 0.89 mils per minute per year, which is like healthy aging. So it's very difficult to show a treatment effect on a on the clinical outcome when the rate of progression is so slow in the normal albuminuric subgroup. And when your trial gets stopped early at two years for efficacy, right? Because you're looking at an expected GFR decline of like two mils per minute, which is like nothing. It's like lab error. And so I don't know that you're going to see a big effect in this group when the study is cut short that yeah. soon. And when you look at the normal albuminuric data from other trials, from the type 2 diabetes trials and even the heart failure trials, there is a clear reduction in risk of kidney disease progression in the normal albuminuric subgroups in other populations. Yes, they're not dedicated CKD trials. Yes, they're not low GFR, low albuminuria, but um, that, that's interesting and needs to be teased out a bit further. Yeah, I think that the Empareg outcome is the one that sort of stands out to me as being one of the, what what I was what I used to try and argue with our pharmacists when I was trying to get patients below a certain albuminuria and try and get them on an SGLT2. Can I ask a question though? Uh, this is for yeah, Sophia. Sophia, you got to finish your thought. You can't go halfway down that <laughs> hole and then change your link. Please finish your thought and then you can ask your question, okay? Oh, what was my thought? Um, oh, God. You were talking about Empereg outcome, and you were assuming we all know what Empereg outcome is. And, <laughs> and you were talking to pharmacists, and then 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I would be trying to convince pharmacists that we need to be able to prescribe SGLT2s below, a, you know, a proteinuric or albuminuric threshold of 200 milligrams per gram. And Empireg outcome is what I would always try and bring back to them. What's more challenging is, you know, the GFR and Empireg outcome is much higher. That being said, you know, there's no reason why we'd think somebody with worse kidney function is not going to do as well. Um, if we put them on an SGLT2. Uh, so that's what I was trying to go with that. Yeah, and certainly the KDGO guidelines as they stand, Sophie, do not have an albuminuria threshold for initiating an SGLT2 inhibitor in people with diabetes and CKD. That's largely based on the data that you've mentioned at Perig Outcome and, and the meta-analyses of all of the available data showing kidney protective benefits, even in normal albuminuric populations. Now, the guideline writers are going to have to grapple with the results of kidney and see and see how that um, affects recommendations. But clearly there's an opportunity to pull all of the available data across 13 SGLT2 inhibitor outcome trials, look at low GFR, low albuminuria, and see what the effects on kidney disease progression are. The other important thing to point out is what we need to think about what kind of event we're trying to prevent, right? We're not just thinking about kidney disease progression. And I know Swapnil's made this point uh, previously when we've spoken about it. You know, there's clear benefits on heart failure hospitalization. And actually, if you look at kidney, all-cause hospitalization as well. And the rate of all-cause hospitalization in this low GFR population is pretty substantial. It's something like a third to half of participants with the lowest GFR category were hospitalized during the trial, and you have a 15% reduction in all-course hospitalization. So I think we have to be very clear when we're talking about, oh, maybe does it work or does it not work in people without albuminuria? What event are we talking about? Because there are clear and separate benefits apart from just the kidney. What, what do you think? Do we have any clarity on what kind of hospitalizations are being avoided? If it's not heart failure hospitalizations, which were not significantly different, right? There was no heart failure signal. I mean, and, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about, I, of course, I think this drug is great for heart failure, but in this study, there wasn't a heart failure signal, but there was a hospitalization signal. What, what do you think that is? I'm not sure, Joel. I'm sure that data will be forthcoming, but but one of the interesting things in DAPA CKD was the reduction in risk of non-cardiovascular death. And, you know, we all know that our patients get hospitalized for infection and other reasons. And so it makes me wonder whether or not there are potentially benefits on other causes of non-cardiovascular causes of hospitalization, but that data needs to be teased out further. But that's what that's an interesting hypothesis, I think. So the, the heterogeneity coefficient, specifically when it came to the urinary albumin to creatinine ratio, for someone who's not a researcher, how does that how is that brought into this and why should we think that that's relevant? And what does that mean to me? Yeah, so so I mean the uh, I let me see if they actually did did they give an interaction P value? The I guess what you're talking no, about is the any GM doesn't. Will Harrington did during the presentation at ASN. Yeah, it's 0. 0.06 for diabetes status, and it's 0. 0.02 for albuminuria. So, so it is significant. But the thing is, like, are these tests powerful uh, enough? Uh, do they? What do they mean? And, and that's the reason, I guess, NEGM doesn't have them because what is the hypothesis there? Do you know? Are you testing a real hypothesis there? So that's the reason the interaction p-values are not there. So they are kind of hypothesis generating at the best of time saying, hey, you know, there is something there, especially when because the sample sizes are smaller uh, for these subgroups. So you're slicing and dicing them. Uh, and as uh, as Josh pointed out, this trial was stopped early. So you may get some chance findings with a p-value of 0.05 or, or less. That's the concern. 
So I think, Sophie, the key clinical point is that when we look at subgroup analyses, uh, we shouldn't pull out individual treatment effects from one particular subgroup. The interaction p-value tells us whether or not there's sufficient evidence to reject the null hypothesis. There is uh, no difference in effect across the subgroups. And if that interaction p-value is less than 0.05, then there is evidence that the treatment effect may differ across the subgroups. The point, though, is that if you do that enough, then you're going to get chance findings just by luck. And you only have to do the test 11 t- across 11 subgroups to get one that's significant by chance alone. And the smaller the subgroup, the more likely you're going to get funny results just by chance. So I'd certainly caution against over-interpreting subgroup analyses. Okay, we can move on now. Thank you. Any other subgroups that we want to talk about? Because I want to talk about slope because I'm very excited about slope because I think that the, I think the reason that slope is so interesting is because where the primary outcome is going to be whether they hit these uh, renal outcomes or death, right? The cardiovascular death. And slope is more of a continuous variable that should be less affected by a study that stopped early for these subgroups. And that's what I was super interested in. So lay, us, lay, lay some slope data on us. Yeah, so uh, essentially we're going to be looking at figure three in the paper and then supplemental figure S6. So if we go ahead and look at the rate of the EGFR change, and while you can see at the end of the first two months... Sophia, that's on page 43 of the supplement, S6, okay? (laughs) I'm not getting involved in that. (laughs) So you can see that while you're at the end of the first two months, you see that the Flozen group does have a larger EGFR decline. But then when you go ahead and you follow through that timeline you can see that the rate of EGFR decline in the Flozen group was slower than the placebo group. And that number I got here was 0.75 milliliters a minute. And you can see it very nicely visually on both of those figures. And then if you look at the supplemental, the EGFR decline was slower in the Flozen group for the same subgroups that we mentioned before, the ones for diabetes, a UACR of greater than 100, and then the EGFR of 45. But again, the albuminuria subgroup is the one that kind of just seems to pop out a little bit more than, say, the others. Right, right. But in in this case, if you look at the long-term slope, even in the albuminuria less than 30, uh, empaglifosin is better. So the the slope is uh, 0.78 less um, so it's kind of it's showing a benefit even in the low albuminuria, going back to the fact that we had only 80 events. So there was a benefit, but it was so slow that it didn't translate into event reduction, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, I feel like this was a lot clearer in the figure that Will showed in the presentation as opposed to in the for, into this plot here. Because I, I remember seeing these like very gradual slope lines for the low albuminuria group, that minus 0.9 mils per minute per year graph going essentially to flat in the group that has no albuminuria, the minus 0.1 mils per minute per year. And I think for me, as like a visual person, that just made more of an impact than, than these boxes and lines on, on this plot that I'm used to interpreting in a different way. Yeah, and the slides that uh, Will presented at Kidney Week, Josh, are available online, so we should link those in the show notes as well. But I think we should take it a step back a little bit and just talk about slope in general, because we're going to be seeing it across more and more renal outcome trials. Like Joel mentioned before, the advantage of slope is it gives us additional power to detect effects on kidney disease progression compared to the standard clinical outcome. And 
we have to th there are different definitions of slope and we have to be clear what we're talking about so there's chronic or long-term slope and then there's total slope and the difference is chronic slope excludes the acute dip right so if you've got an acute dip in gfr at the start and then you've got the treatment long-term treatment effect after that the long-term slope or chronic slope excludes that acute treatment effect then you've got total slope which takes into the account both the acute effect and the chronic effect. And so you can see in the figure in the appendix that even, let's just take the albuminuria subgroups, for example, when you look at long-term slope or chronic slope excluding the acute effect, you can see clear preservation of kidney function across all of the albuminuria categories, including those with normal albuminuria. When you look at total slope, you can see that there's no clear effect on total slope in the normal albuminuric subgroup. That's just probably because the rate of progression is so slow and also because of the acute dip in GFR that happens at the start that muddies the effect in general. But it's important, I think, for us to be literate about slope because there are ongoing renal outcome trials where chronic slope and total slope are being used as the primary outcome, particularly non-diabetic and GN trials. Yeah, so the FDA has uh, accepted uh, EGFR slope also as an outcome in, in the workshop that I mentioned before. So you're right, we will see many more uh, of trials having EGFR. Do they exclude, but when they say slope, do they do total slope or long-term slope? When you say the FDA, what, which one do they look at? They got to look at total slope, right? Yeah, so in the phenerinone non-diabetic kidney trial, which I'm involved in, the primary outcome is total slope. And then chronic slope is a supportive out secondary outcome, which is that find CKD? That's find CKD swap nil, yeah. 1,600 people with non-diabetic kidney disease, randomized to phenerone or placebo. How, what's total the proteinuria requirement there? Uh, it's pretty high. It's about ha over half a gram a day. Yeah. Because you need, you know, you need people to progress. Have events. Uh, yeah. To get the, yeah, requisite number Brendan, of events. Brendan, you got your hand in like all the honeypot. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 busy. It's keeping my hands full. Yeah. <laughs> Sticky for for a newly minted nephrologist, that's quite something. Yeah, the 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 slope, the long term slope for the the low proteinuria one is is unbelievable, right? It's point one cc per minute per year. Like in a decade, you've lost you've lost one cc, one milliliter per minute. I mean, that's amazing. I think the idea that people would accept an immediate GFR hit to say that you're going to drop your GFR, but you're going to stay here for as long as I can tell, for as long as I'm your kidney doctor, and as long as I can accurately measure labs, that seems like a pretty good trade-off on starting one of these medicines to me. Yeah, yeah. And Josh, that slope, that treatment effect on long-term slope in in the normal albuminuric group is exactly the same as in the diabetes cardiovascular outcome trials. You essentially stop kidney disease progression. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it looks like. It looks like it's stopping. It's amazing. Add it to the drinking water. Well, that's that's actually perfect because I think um, if we feel comfortable moving from the slope, we can move on to the safety outcomes and things such as dehydration, hyperkalemia. So kind of moving back to the table two and finishing uh, finishing this up, towards the bottom of that table, you see those safety outcomes or those adverse events that we want to pay attention to. If you go ahead and, and look through that, though, you can see that the Flozen group did have a higher rate of lower limb amputations. There was a note of a patient or a participant that did have ketoacidosis. But I think if we look at more common things that we are going to be looking at, we want to look at the hyperkalemia that we might be able to see on our labs. 
we can see that there isn't a higher uh, risk of that in our empagliflozin compared to the placebo. Um, other Flip things it around. Can, There's a lower oh, risk. Excuse me. A lower risk. That's what I meant. So that, yeah, that yeah. was good in that There's a lower risk of hyperkalemia. It's weird that they put serious hyperkalemia. That sounds like an investigator assessed outcome, serious hyperkalemia. I, I just wish, just give me the number. Just tell me the potassium went over six, how many times? <laughs> or no, no, right. Yeah. right? Because like my, one person's serious hyperkalemia may not be, may, may be very different than somebody else's serious hyperkalemia. And I don't, I, I just tell me what the number was. Is this a potassium level that the investigators were measuring or are these hospitalizations patients had for hyperkalemia separately from the trial? You're right, Joel. That I mean, this was the same in Credence as well. We collected seri- investigator-reported hyperkalemia events and then also collected serial labs as well. Um, and at least in Credence and DAPA-CKD, we found that there was pretty striking concordance between the reduction in risk of investigator-reported hyperkalemia and time to serious potassium greater than six. So I'm not, it's unclear what the individual investigators reported. It's even more confusing with the, the serious urinary tract infection and serious genital infection. Like, I don't know what that is. What's a serious urinary But I was really excited about these because I feel like yeah. I've spent so much time telling patients you could have a urinary tract infection as a side effect of this medicine. You may never have had a urinary tract infection before. Urinary tract infections are this, 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 and this, like symptoms, blah, blah, blah. I didn't get into this business because I care about urinary tract infections all that much. If I did, I would be a urologist. But I feel like I've spent so much time doing that. And I feel like this validates the idea. Maybe I don't have to give that spiel anymore. Maybe because there's not an increased risk of serious urinary tract infection. Maybe that's not part of the counseling we have to give to all these patients when we start them on these medicines. Am I interpreting that reasonably or is that? Yeah, the only cautionary, uh, I agree with you, Josh, but the only cautionary uh, note I would put in there is that if you look at the pool data uh, in the Lancet meta-analysis and in the previous meta-analysis, uh, there is a small increase. It's a very small, right? 1.05 or so. Uh, and Brendan can tell the actual number increase in UTI, not just serious UTI. It's it's a very small, uh, but significant increase, but it's it's all, almost completely driven in diabetes. And there's nothing in, in non-diabetic uh, populations, uh, and, which is why perhaps in MPA kidney, the signal seems to be very, very low compared to the previous trials. But the yeah. signal in most trials for genital infections is very clear, quite significant. Right, right. The genital very clear for genital infections. That's what you need to be telling your patients about. And those are like fungal infections in the genital creases and stuff. We talk about that too, but at least I can shorten that spiel to really focus on. Yeah, I think I think the, the UTI the UTI is usually not found in in the big trials. I'm so, I was surprised that it came up in the meta analysis. That's interesting. You know what's interesting is I've spoken to numerous endocrinologists and they feel anecdotally that urinary tract infections is a real issue. And, and that's the thing, right? If you look at the number of UTIs, even in the placebo group, the absolute number is pretty high. Uh, uh, yes. So, so yes. that, and the relative risk is very slightly high. And, and I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's very clear that it is significantly high, but it's very a small relative risk increase. But the absolute numbers at baseline in diabetes is so high that when someone is on a flozin, it's easy to blame it. Once we adjust for the placebo effect, it's a very tiny uh, effect size. But also, I guess, what does serious mean? Does serious mean like you can have an outpatient set of antibiotics and does that count or is it just... Typically hospitalization. Because I know from what I've been seeing and hearing from other people that have been doing this and even patients is they do feel like they are um, having increased genital infections or yeast infections or increased amount of urinary output. And, you know, so 
anecdotally, you know, these are the things that don't really coincide with these hospitalizations. But anecdotally, it is something that I, I hear other providers see or keep telling me. So I'm not, I'm not really too sure what to say with that. Well, that's the beauty of uh, double-blind randomization, isn't it? You, it's, not an, it's not an anecdote. And the data are very clear with respect to UTIs. I think that risk is really overstated. Of course, the mycotic infections is real, but you know the UTIs, I think, is not part of my regular spiel because the data don't support it. The randomized evidence does not support it. The, um, and, and talking of amputations, um, it's mostly... Uh, if you look at supplementary table S7, it was mostly toe and forefoot. You know, there was it wasn't below knee or above knee amputations. Again, I'm not saying it's not important, but it was mostly very, very lower down, forefoot and toe. Those numbers were so small. There's no increased risk in amputation, is their prayer. There was no increased risk of amputation in the in kidney. I mean, only 20 toes in the whole study. I mean, that's just two feet. No, no. <laughs> Four feet, four feet, not two feet. There's five toes per foot, not 10. <laughs> it's 20 toes versus 14 toes. It's like it's like four feet versus three feet. It's yeah, very it's, similar. It's very similar, very similar. The four foot data is not very clear. It's, not, it's, it's much more just interesting. Okay. I think it's important to point out that no trial since Canvas has shown an increased risk of amputation. The only trial that showed an increased risk was in was the Canvas program. And we've looked long and hard for years to try and find out what happened. And we can't find any clear explanation for it, which leaves open the possibility of chance if you test enough outcomes. But no one's ever going to know for certain. But I think with the other agents, we're pretty clear that it doesn't cause any increased risk of amputations. And the amputation rate in the placebo group of Canvas was incredibly low, right? Like it, 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 it was very weird. Like yeah. the amputation risk in Canvas was very similar to the amputation risk in in DAPA CKD, oh, in DAPA CKD, they're, they're, oh no, now, now I think it's EMPA. It is EMPA. Mm-hmm. That if you look at the but people on study drug in both those studies, their amputation risk was very, very similar. But the, the one that was, uh, that stood out was the placebo risk for amputation in canvas was very, was profoundly. So, so on the on the topic of uh, mycotic genital infections, uh, Brendan, do you know if that risk goes up even in non-diabetic in in your meta-analysis, or is that something that you are going to look at? Yeah, we oh, haven't. Question. We haven't looked at that specifically yet. Swap. So we've looked at that in um, in credence. We couldn't find a clear signal that it increased with worsening glycemic control. You'd think it would, but in most circumstances, the mycotic genital infections in credence were very easily treated and uh, didn't require hospitalisation. Most cases didn't require discontinuation of the st- of the drug. Hey, there's no mention of Fournier's gangrene at all here. Is that, are we? Is that like a, a a no thing? Like we're we're not even considering it because it's hullabaloo and tomfoolery uh, these days. And I'm, again, uh, the the whole uh, um, that data is based on case reports, right? It's such a rare outcome that it would be really hard to find enough cases in RCTs uh, to give you any kind of an estimate. It, it, it seems it is probably it's pretty plausible that it could be real, but the numbers are going to be very very small. And it's hard because, you know, post-marketing surveillance reports are subject to bias. It's not randomized. People more likely to recall an SGLT2 inhibitor use if because uh, it's a new therapy. And also because people who you're going to prescribe this drug to, at least in the first few years that it was available, are more likely to get infections anyway. So it's really difficult to tease out all those competing signals and risk of biases. 
Yeah, Sophia, on uh, table S7, in the, uh, <laughs> it does say that there were no cases of necrotizing fasciitis <laughs> of the perineum, otherwise known as Fonier's gangrene. Well, now you've outperformed me with, with the supplement, Joel. I think, I, think, I think Joel is going to be insufferable now that he knows the supplement exists. Yeah, I was going to say, Joel, are you just going to get a supplement on every single one now? Like, I, I've, I've turned the page. Yeah, you have discovered, discovered the supplement. Are, are, you, are we still fundraising for NetJC or is that phase past? Because I think always, you could auction off. Always. Auction off. A, a Joel Top author signed copy of the supplement of the supplement <laughs> to someone who donates uh, some amount of money to. to I would donate to that. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people would for the one, especially the copy first copy. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, especially we'll the one where he was part of the supplement. Yeah, you got to get a hold of that copy. <laughs> we are our our research department is rather prolific. We're in a lot of these studies. Yeah, the kidney's not is, doesn't stand alone there. Okay, so let's see. I think, wow, I think we've gone through a lot of the supplemental tables. I'm trying to see which one. Can we talk about Sirius AKI? Because uh, I like this one. Yeah, I I have a little scribble here. I was actually really happy to see that AKI was lower in the empagliflozin group than the placebo group because you know, those are all the things that I remember talking to about patients is the UTIs, the you know, the fungal infections, all these things. And I'm just really happy to see that it was actually lower. And that's a consistent effect, right? Even before Brendan has a meta-analysis a couple of yeah. years ago in Lancet showing that AKI is lower, which is phenomenal. Uh, you know, a few years ago, FDA had a black box saying there's more AKI and, and you know, which was in the opposite direction. So it was so, so wrong. Uh, so of course, the black box is gone, but this is a beneficial effect, which is seen consistently I think in all the flows in trials and there are, you know, real world outcome data also, which shows that there's a reduction in AKI. Now, the effect is there. Like, what causes this? How, how do you explain it? You know, I think one of the most plausible hypotheses, Swapnil, is that these drugs reduce proximal energy expenditure and re reduce the susceptibility of the kidney to ischemic and volume related insults. That's particularly important in the diabetic kidney. But I think as you mentioned, there's clearly a 20% risk reduction in acute kidney injury, even in people without diabetes. So we need to better understand that. But I think that energy kind of expenditure hypothesis in the proximal tubule is really central uh, to that explanation. And I remember uh, there was a paper that I think we discussed in the DAPA CKD discussion at era 11 or Sue Coggin brought it up. Uh, someone had written a paper saying uh, flozins are like the beta blockers for the kidney. So, you know, the, the energy expenditure theory is, is kind of cool because we still don't know why they work, right? I mean, there are all these theories out there about how exactly they work. We can say it's a kidney or it's pleiotropic effect or whatever, but it's, it's the effect is so dramatically more than what, would one, what one would expect to see. And there's interesting data from Peter Bjornstad's group in Colorado. They've done uh, MRI studies of the kidney that have shown changes in oxygenation. Um, in the cortex and medulla with SGLT2 inhibition. So there's kind of experimental evidence that's accruing that supports that hypothesis. Okay, so this drug reduces dialysis, reduces progression of kidney disease, reduces ho overall hospitalization. In other studies, it has a clear cardiovascular benefit. We won't do detail that now, but in, from continuing on the kidney outcomes, less hyperkalemia, less acute kidney injury, no significant difference in any of the adverse events. Was there any of them? I don't think any of them were significant in this one. And 
and more patients discontinued the placebo than actually discontinued the drug, which gives you a good sign of how well tolerated this drug was. Why would you not take this drug? This is amazing. Exactly. And the, the other way is is to say, you know, so far we know it works. It, it, it is There's a benefit in diabetic patients with high cardiovascular risk. It's beneficial in it's beneficial in diabetic patients with high cardiovascular risk. It's beneficial in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction with or without diabetes. It's beneficial as far as hospitalization for heart failure is concerned in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction with or without diabetes. It's beneficial in patients with diabetes and chronic kidney disease with proteinuria with or without diabetes based on DAPA-CKD. And now we show that it's beneficial in patients with chronic kidney disease with or without diabetes down to a GFR of 20 with or without albuminuria. So, you know, it's like the, the fraction of the world which has not got benefit from a flozin is shrinking. You know, it's not that who is there out there who can get benefit. It's like, who is there who cannot get a benefit from flozins? You know, we have to find that small, tiny slivers of population in whom flozins, we don't know enough about flozins yet. I mean, really, I, what is the survival benefit of having an SGLT2 channel anyways? Like, we should just get rid of that thing. We should just... Knock, <laughs> knock it out. Wow. CRISPR. We have to bring Sue back on for that podcast about the sweet pea mouse, which they have that is an SGLT2 knockout. There are some downsides in that mouse model, but I think these drugs are really powerful in lots of groups, perhaps every group, like Lace Rockwell said. Okay, let's let's go around the horn with final thoughts. Uh, Josh, you got any final thoughts? Two thumbs up for Flozins. Okay. Uh, Priya, what do you got? Final thoughts? Yeah, so I think uh, kind of like I was saying earlier, we've all heard these anecdotes of UTIs and fungal infections. And just like Brendan said, uh, these numbers are here and they show um, very clearly and a, a large group of participants in this study So I think it really kind of helps me to feel more comfortable. We've had so many different studies come out over the last, you know, several months and years. This is just another one to add into our back pocket uh, to, you know, prescribe these medications and also now prescribe it to patients with advanced CKD and to feel a little bit more comfortable um, starting it in those states with patients. Swap, what do you got? The the only additional thing I would like to say is that also read that Lancet meta-analysis that Brendan is part of. Uh, It kind of, this this whole body of literature is so consistent, right? All these drugs are, it's it's all a class effect and uh, to see this consistent effect and and there are some really nice figures in that which kind of put the benefit and, you know, whatever little bit of harm is there in in context, especially in diabetics, non-diabetics. So please read that paper uh, if, if you have any doubts left at all, which no one should. Sophia? I think, in my opinion, the the big push is now beyond us. It's beyond us nephrologists. It's it's really how do we get this out into the world? Because there's still a large swath of physicians that are uncomfortable prescribing it. They still think that we should uh, not prescribe it under a GFR of 30. So how do we communicate this beyond our neck of the woods? And I think it's really challenging And then beyond that, now we have to encourage them to push it down to a GFR of 20. We have to encourage them to push it into patients who don't have diabetes and then into patients who don't have albuminuria or have very minimal albuminuria. And I think that that's going to be a big challenge, but that's that's really what we're embarking upon. We have so much data, and I think we believe the data. How do we get it out beyond us and to the populations that are not as up to date on all of this and don't sit here and talk for an hour and 40 minutes about SGLT2s and, 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 a, and a manuscript, right, that just came out. 
There are people that don't sit down and talk for an hour and 45 minutes about SGLT. I don't believe <laughs> I don't believe that people exist. Josh, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I think like Sophie had said, we need to keep pushing the boundary on who we give these medicines to. And I think the study raises the question of keeping pushing that boundary even lower than a GFR of 20. I don't know that we're going to get a trial of GFRs of 10 to 18. We are. It's already being run. Are we? Oh, then yeah. never mind. That'll be, that'll be great to see. Yeah, I think it's called, um, it's a lifetime uh, or life, renal, tra- life change. Renal life cycles. So, so it, life cycles. Yeah, so it's got Man, GFR. What's up with these names? Fif- They're so good. Fifteen hundred patients, five hundred dialysis patients, five hundred transplant wow. patients, and five hundred GFRs less than twenty. Wow. Oh my goodness. Well, I think then I retract my previous statement about <laughs> needing to do this immediately. But I think that the subgroups we're seeing having benefit all the way down to GFRs of twenty, even small subgroups of GFRs fifteen to twenty in this trial. People who treat that GFR cutoff from a trial as like written in stone on a tablet from the mountain, like you're overlooking the way that we're supposed to practice medicine, which is like, why would it make sense that it works at 21 and not at 19? Um, So I think like using these medicines as much as we can to prevent the progression of kidney disease as much as we can while we wait the really conclusive data in all these patients, I think is a reasonable way to practice. And just to add on, I know I've had my say, but to add on to, because we didn't say it in this podcast, but in all these trials, the flus and swearing stopped, right? So even if the flus in is started, remember, uh, you need not stop it if the GFR goes below 20. Ride it all the way down to dialysis and in DAPA CKD at least, and I'm not sure what happened in the MPA kidney, but they were not stopped even after they started dialysis. So which is kind of interesting uh, is that in that initial phase when people have residual kidney function, there may be some effect that is still going on. So uh, I, I usually stop it when they start dialysis, but I'm thinking maybe we need not even stop it even after they start dialysis. I'm going to leave Brendan the last mo- the last word, so that means I got to get in my word before Brendan. Okay, but because Brendan, you're going to get so, the last. So your word. last word is read the supplement. Two, no, no, I got two things. I got two things. So one, <laughs> one, I got a, I got an unfortunate woman who's got bad heart failure. And we're, I'm co, she's a dialysis patient. I'm co-managing with, heart, with a cardiologist. And the cardiologist started in my dialysis patient an SGLT2 inhibitor. And, uh, and I got a call from my PA panicking. Oh, my God, there's patients was put on, uh, I think it was, it was Jardian. So I was like, go with it. Don't stop. We're going to do this. So I think people are hearing this. They're seeing the effect size and they're pushing it. And I'm pretty excited about that. And then the other thing I want to say is I used to look at this direct-to-consumer advertising where they had these television ads for Medicaid, for prescription medications, ask your doctor about this, that, and the other thing, and it looked so crass. It was so inherently negative to that. And we right now, uh, we're, uh, AstraZeneca's running a Farsiga direct-to-consumer advertising and when I want to, uh, when I have a patient that, that that is susceptible, that it looks like a good candidate, I'll mention, well, I'm thinking about starting on this medication, Farsiga. And they're like, doc, I wanted to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought that up. And people are saying to me, I've never seen a television ad for a medication for me, right? There's never been a medication for CKD. And that's what this is. This is like our first CKD drug. And it makes it, it's amazing how much it lowers the barrier of resistance patients have towards these drugs. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And you know, once again, I will say that I, I did, uh, I am an advisor to AstraZeneca. Brendan, give us our final thoughts. Thanks, Joel. 
I think if now we look at the totality of the renal outcome data, there's very, very clear evidence, not only that these agents reduce kidney disease progression or kidney failure across all levels of GFR study to date, as Josh mentioned, but also irrespective of CKD etiology, you know, very clear benefits like 40% risk reductions in kidney failure in people with IgA nephropathy, no evidence that that treatment effect differs across the range of glomerular diseases studied so far. And I think that provides very clear evidence that these drugs should be considered as foundational therapy for CKD alongside RAS inhibition. And to, to pick up on your point, Joel, about the consumer advertising and also Sophie's to, a, to an extent, you know, it's great. We've got two agents now that two classes of medications that reduce kidney failure. The challenge is, is implementing those in everyone who needs it. And if things keep going the way they are, and there's no reason to think that this is the end of it, we've got other additional therapies being tested for neronone, um, you know, GLP-1 receptor agonists in people with diabetic nephropathy. We're going to be in the situation that the heart failure cardiologists are already in, where there are multiple therapies that form guideline-directed therapy, but they can't get everyone who needs it onto therapy. And we need to start thinking now as a community about how we're going to study uh, implementation as a field in nephrology, because if, to fully realize the benefits of these therapies, we need to get them out there into, you know, to patients. And that's the next challenge from a research perspective, I think. You nailed it, right? Like, I, I know I've had my say, but you talk, we still talk about the fact that every patient who is on a who should be on an ACE inhibitor is not on an ACE inhibitor or RAS inhibitor, right? We still have that literature showing that insufficient number of people with CKD are on the RAS inhibitors. We don't want to face that again. This is, you know, 30 years after the Lewis uh, Captopril trial. So let's let's shrink that and, and try to get everyone on Flozins and, you know, the other effective drugs. And, and I guess a lot of research should be spent on implementation. I'm completely with you. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. So uh, after we do our talk, we do our tubular secretions. Swap, you are always reliable having a tubular secretion ready to go. And since I don't have mine, we'll start with you. Yeah. So uh, I've been watching this uh, series, TV series. I know Nyan is not here, so I'm, I'm pitching some TV. So on Prime Video called The Peripheral, uh, my son actually recommended that. And it's like, it starts off with a virtual reality. So he's a gamer. And I thought, oh, it's about gaming. And I was reluctant to watch it, but it is it is really, really good. It's not about gaming. It's about, uh, you know, time travel and other cool sh- stuff. And, and the other uh, cool thing about that peripheral is in episode four or five, I think, of the first season, they have a small mention of Jon Snow, uh, you know, the cholera, Broad Street pump, uh, the actual Jon Snow. So, you know, there's an Easter egg there. So please watch all the way at least. In- not, the game of, not the Game of Thrones. Not the Game of uh, Thrones, Jon Snow. Snow. Exactly. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Not that one. Okay. Who's okay. that? I don't the know pump. that. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> swap, swap. I've seen that uh, that first um, season. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I've, I've had that recommended by a friend also. So put that on the list. Excellent. The Peripheral on Amazon Prime. Hey, Priya, what do you got? Yes, it's holiday season, so I've been doing a lot of driving back and forth, and I love podcasts, and I'm a true crime junkie, so I'm currently listening to Unsealed, the Tylenol murders. Uh, Essentially, this was, I think it was like back in the 90s or something like that, Um, 80s or 90s. 80s, 80s. Yeah, 80s or 90s, (laughs) so 80-something. But uh, essentially, this was like a huge thing that happened in Illinois, and 
a lot of, you know, pharmaceutical safety, you know, mechanisms came into play because of these murders. It's still unsolved. So it's it's a good uh, series so far. I'm about halfway through. So if you're a true, true crime fan, uh, check it out. What's the name of the podcast? It's called Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. Uh, okay, excellent. Very good. Uh, Sophia, got, you got anything for us? Uh, all I, so I rarely read books, and it's in part because I feel like I'm too busy and I've got my kids at home and then I just fall asleep when I try. But I finally found one uh, that kept me awake long enough that I could make it through, and it's called Project Hail Mary. It's by the same author that wrote Martian. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the author. The Martian. Yeah, Andy. Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Andy. Andy Weiss. Andy Weiss. Yeah. Weiss? Yeah. Weiss? Yeah. W-E-S. It's great. It's a great book. You've read yeah. it? Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, you. the character development beyond the two characters is pretty limited. Uh, but, you know, like it brings me back a little bit to some of my physics and um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So and that's that's the good thing about this guy is that out. even um, Martian was like that. Uh, a lot of swearing. Uh, and a lot of science and uh, he's got one in between called Artemis uh, which is based on the moon which is also very similar it's not as good it's not as yeah, good the Martian as, Martian uh, was a the Martian and this one are heads and shoulders above Artemis I agree but I, but he's this one's great it's a great book I would highly recommend I would highly recommend uh, Hail Mary. Project Hail Mary really good stuff really creative I haven't read the a book in a long time and I made it all the way through pretty quickly so that's got to nice. say something. Okay, Brendan, you got something for us? Yeah, like everyone else, I've got my uh, Spotify most listened to over the last <laughs> year or so. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I just thought I'd mention my top artist uh, this year was an American singer-songwriter, Lizzie McAlpine. She's uh, only 23. She's a folk singer-songwriter, but I'm obsessed with her at the moment. I think she's great, and she's just getting better exponentially every day, so... Uh, shout out to Lizzie McAlpine. Love her stuff. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Josh, you got how anything? You, how do you spell it really quick? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Lizzie, uh, L-I-Z-Z-Y, McAlpine, M-C-A-L-P-I-N-E. Okay. Excellent. Josh, what do you got? Yeah. So I, I've actually been listening to a podcast recommended to me by my MSNBC loving watching in-laws who do not listen to the podcast. Um, and that's the Rachel Maddow Ultra podcast. I don't know if folks have heard about this. It's And I understand that there are a variety of political opinions, but Rachel Maddow has a strong one. Um, but I think that the way she tells a story about um, the German government in World War II trying to infiltrate uh, American government and levers of power and misinformation is a really interesting one. Um, it's very well produced and very well told. The only thing I worry about is our jobs. If TV producers keep coming for them and taking over podcasting, we will have nothing left for us. Um, but it's a great eight episode series on this really unique, maybe not so unique chapter in American history with, with some significant echoes of the present day. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, I just want to say that um, uh, chaos at Twitter continues. And uh, I, my concern about this staple of our uh, social media, the connective tissue that holds together uh, nephrology social media is Twitter. And even though it doesn't seem to be collapsing under technological debt that uh, many predicted, and that may still happen, who knows, that may still happen. 
And I have tried a number of the a number of the alternatives, uh, Post.News and Reddit and Med Mastodon, and I don't think any of them quite do it. But I would urge everybody to get a Med Mastodon handle in case Twitter does collapse under its own weight or under uh, uh, right wing uh, bad actors. It does feel uh, that this service is still under threat and you may still need a lifeboat. So please, we will put a link in the show notes. Get yourself a Med Mastodon handle so in case Twitter does go away, you will have a place to continue to contact us. This has been a lot of fun. This has been a great one. This is an important study that we'll be talking about for a while.